Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show as we start off here. Northeast Streaming Sports Day here on our Thursday show, our first show of the week. We're live on uh, Roku TV, YouTube, and Facebook. Good morning. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, Jack Hirsch, as we cover sports for you all day. We'll have a, a couple great guests for you coming up. Uh, Bobby Goodman, a Hall uh, Boxing Hall of Fame matchmaker. Uh, we're going to try and get on the phone for you today. And Russell Peltz, another Hall of Famer, promoter and author. They'll both be on the show today. Jack, how you doing this morning? Real good, Mac. Uh, anytime we talk boxing, it gets me going, it's especially the last hour. I mean, we have a Super Bowl feeling in the air, but you can only talk about the Super Bowl so much. Other sports are going on. They sure are, Jack. Today, uh, Carter won't be with us, our NHL expert. He'll be back next week, folks. So, But we will go over some of the NFL standings and scores for you, uh, just to update you on that. Let's start it off, uh, Jack, with the NBA. And we'll go with the standings since this is our first show of the week. Uh, right now in the East, the Heat's at 35-20 and 20 in first place. The Bucks in second at 35-21. and 21. The Bulls. In third at 34 and 21, tied with the Cleveland Cavaliers, but also at 34 and 21. The 76ers are at 35 and 22, and the Raptors have jumped into sixth place, Jack, at 32 and 22. Seven it's, wins in a row. Toronto yes. out of nowhere. Yes, they did, Jack. And, and you know, uh, the Celtics have also been on a six game winning streak. And the Nets. Are spiraling out of control, Jack, falling downward, nine-game losing streak. Of course, there's reasons for that. Some of them are self-inflicted, some not their fault. The bullies are getting what they deserve, Mac. And this is coming from a net fan. The bullies are getting what they deserve because of how they run that organization. No, I agree, Jack. I agree 100%. Uh, you know, I think they didn't – they didn't envision this when they signed all three of those superstars, I don't think. I kind of did. I think you did in a way, too. Well, they didn't sign hard, and they traded for them. The problem is they haven't signed them, and it's a question whether they will or won't. True, but, I mean, they did pick up his contract, right? They are paying the man. Well, well, they have to, of course, but today's the trade deadline. Let's see whether James Harden's a net by the end of the day. My feeling is he will be, but... There's no certainty. The Nets are talking with the 76ers. It wouldn't be a shock, Mac, by tomorrow morning. Ben Simmons is a 76 and James Harden. Uh, ben Simmons is a net, and James Harden is a 76er. Yeah, and that, that would just be fitting for the Nets right now. I know Ben Simmons is an all-star. He does have some really good things that he does. He has talent defensively, addition to ball. Um, I don't know if that will help them out. Um, what I think the Nets did wrong, Jack, was they got rid of a lot of their talent, that up and nuke talent, to get these, try to mesh these three superstars together. Uh, they're all very different in the way they go about the about the game. You got Durant who can take over a game, but is very quiet about it. Harden who can shoot from you know from the stands and make a shot when he's on, but he's he moved to like a point guard where he dishes the ball as much as he scores. And, of course, you've got Kyrie over there who only can play in half the games and goes on vacation sometimes just because he wants to. Let me let me say, the Nets 
gave up so much to get James Harden. Okay. I hated the deal at the time. They gave up a few number one draft picks. They gave up Dinwiddie, Cavius Levert. And most of all, they gave up Jared Allen, who's an absolute star for the Cleveland Cavaliers. One of the best, I'm going to say right now, Jared Allen is one of the best players in the NBA point blank. Double digit rebounds each night. One of the best shooting percentages in the NBA. He's an outstanding defensive center. Let me go a step further, Matt. If I were the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Nets called me and money wasn't an issue and they offered me even up James Harden for Jared Allen, I wouldn't make the deal if I were Cleveland and the Nets had Jared Allen. He was their guy. They would have had Jared Allen, all the number one picks, you know, Dinwiddie, LaVert, et cetera, et cetera, all for James Harden. And they had a heck of a coach, people forget, too, a couple of years ago, Kenny Atkinson. But because Kyrie Irving, you know, had some say in the matter, reportedly at least, reportedly, Kenny Atkinson was let go. And he was a very successful coach with the Nets, a lot better than Steve Nash is now. So what did they do to that team? And James Harden's not happy being a net the way things are going. What he's not happy about exactly, I'm not sure. Maybe it's Kyrie Irving's attitude. Maybe it's not. Players don't like to go public on things. But his unhappiness is an absolute red flag. And you get the feeling he absolutely would welcome a trade to the Philadelphia 76ers when, if you match him with Joe Lambeat, they're very serious NBA championship contenders. But what can the Nets get in return? Now, this is the question. The 76ers, Mac, believe that at the end of the season, Harden's going to go free agent so they can sign Harden and they won't have to give up the, their assets, okay? But that's a risky game, Mac. I'm going to tell you why. If you wait till the end of the season, the Sixers, that means you're not winning the NBA championship this year. You're just not going to win it this year, in all likelihood. Uh, as great as Embiid is, he, the way the rest of the team is playing, it's not going to quite get done. And also the risk is if you wait till the end of the season, James Harden, like any human being, might get to be a little more selfish. If you resign with your own team, you can get more money as a free agent than going elsewhere and signing as a free agent with another team. So it is a really risky proposition. Who's going to give in? Are the Sixers going to give in? Are they going to wait? Decide they're going to wait to the end of the year because they really believe Harden wants to come to them. And keep in mind, the former Houston GM, Murray, uh, uh, who is the GM of the Philadelphia 76ers, so he has a past relationship with Harden, and reportedly it's a good one. So how, how it's going to play down, Mac, it's, this is so for stuff. But we're going to have clarity by tomorrow morning because, as said, the trade deadline is tonight. Well, if you think about it, Jack, the only one that had to change his game coming to play for this game was Harden. Durant still does what he does. Kyrie, when he plays, still does what he does. But the only guy that had to change his game, and he did a, he's done a great job at it, is James Harden. Going from basically a shooting guard, uh, small forward, to a point guard. He's the only one that had to change. And doing all that, sacrificing 
uh, and I don't know if you want to call it sacrificing because he still gets his points, but going from the main, the main spotlight player on one team to a guy that facilitates the other two, he's the one that made the change to his game. So, so I would be unhappy if I was James Harden. Here I am. I'm I'm taking a step to help the team, and these two guys are either hurt, and one just decides to do whatever the hell he wants to do. So of course I would be upset. Why did I do what I what I what I did? So you know sometimes the grass is green on the side, but then you're on the other side of the fence, and you look back at the other side. I, you know I give NBA players a lot of credit for this, and a lot of people don't realize it. They want, really want to win badly. Winning a championship means a lot to them. Being on a team that always has a chance to win a championship means a lot to them. For the majority of them, it's a lot more than just about the money. I mean, they could collect these massive paychecks and just smile coming to work and say, look, we want to win, but if we don't, I'm getting paid millions and millions. I'll just do the best I can show up for my job, but they really, really want to win. That's why a lot of the time you see these high-priced players, these high-priced stars, not happy with the team they're on if the team doesn't have a realistic chance of winning the NBA title. They don't just want to be on a good team. They want that ring, and once they get it, they want to keep winning. I mean, they're not just happy to collect the money. So even though we criticize the players a lot, kudos to them, you know, the NBA players for having that type of attitude at least. And I think that's the case with James Harden. He could collect all the money, but he's never been on a championship team. It bothers him. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame. He's a surefire Hall of Famer, Matt, without a doubt. But that's not enough. He badly wants to be on an NBA championship team. And when he joined the Nets, you know, uh, teaming up with uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving James, and James Harden with that big three, they looked unbeatable. It didn't look like anyone could beat them, Mac. You saw some cracks in the arm in the beginning. You weren't completely sold on them, the big three, three when they first got there. And you said it, but to me it looked like if they all stay healthy – they're focused. They're going to play together. They have the right attitude. They're unstoppable. And it, and it, you know, it hasn't turned out that way. But I'm going to tell you, injuries are not, Mac. When you get a team like the Nets, I don't care even if you're playing bench players. To lose nine in a row, that means you're not that good. Even if the big three come back, all the big three mean they make you one of several contenders. No more than that. Well, again, you know, Jack, you know, um, uh, you know, if I was hardened and, you know, it, it's part of their fault, too. Let's not take fault away from the players because there is a salary cap. And if you want a lot of money, there's certain things that that are going to be sacrificed there, which may may mean some really, really good young players. If you want to sign some big, big name contracts and of course they want to win. They're all competitors. That's why they play uh, uh, professional sports. That's their life. But it does interfere sometimes. The only thing I'm going to tell you, the only reason why I had a problem with this big three, number one, you had Kevin Durant, who's too quiet. He's he, not he a leader. Goes, he goes to teams. He does his thing. He's a he's he's not he's a supportive player, but one of the greatest. Which I don't know why that is. Number two, you're asking James Harden, which he did, change the roles from being the center of attention 
to one of the people that helped the other players get attention. And third, Kyrie Irvin is not a team player. He's never been a team player. He will never be a team player because his priorities are a lot different than most NBA players. His priority is to do what he wants to do. And there's nothing wrong with this, Jack. I mean, that's the way he is. That's the way he is. But he is a great athlete, a great basketball player, whose number one priority is not to compete as a team member to win anything. That's not what Kyrie Irving is. And people got to realize that. They, they've seen it. And don't think things are going to change just because you go to a team. That's not going to change anything. And so I had a problem with talent versus chemistry. You can have all the talent in the world in any sport you want on any team. If you don't have the chemistry, you're not going to win all the games. And that's the problem. Let's make, let's make a little comparison here between attitude-wise between LeBron James and Kevin Durant. When Kyrie Irving played for the Cavaliers, LeBron James kept him in check. Kyrie Irving knew he didn't have the loudest voice in the room. Okay? And LeBron James would go at Kyrie Irving at times like, you're our point guard. Play like you're our point guard. Distribute the ball the right way. And Kyrie Irving would be unhappy at times. And eventually that may have been the reason he left the Cavaliers after years because he didn't like LeBron James hovering over him more or less. But LeBron James kept Kyrie Irving in line. They were able to win a championship they were able to be successful other years, like go to the finals. So now Kyrie Irving goes to the Celtics. He's a supposed leader, but he wasn't a leader, okay? Two years of uh, wasted years for the Celtic organization for the most part. Even though they came one game away from going to the finals, Kyrie, Kyrie Irving was out for that game. And they lost to the Cavaliers, who didn't have Kyrie Irving yet went to the finals without Kyrie, okay? Kyrie comes to the Nets. He has Jay, he has Kevin Durant in check. Kevin, you know, because Kevin Durant's his friend. Kevin Durant listens. Kevin Durant should just make it his team the way LeBron makes any team he's on his team. Come to the forefront. Be a leader. Kevin Durant is a great, great player. He is not a leader. He is not a leader. That point blank, and that's the trouble. Kyrie Irving is the leader of that team, a bad leader, but nevertheless the leader. When James Harden came to the Nets, he didn't want to step on Kevin Durant's toes. He understood it was the team, you know, Kyrie and Kevin Durant's team. He just wanted to win. He decided, I'm fitting in. I don't have to come here and be this big star. I'm going to contribute any way I can. I'm going to do whatever I'm told. The problem is the coach, Steve Nash, in reality, is not telling him what he has to do. It's Kyrie Irving who immediately said to him, you play the point guard, leave the scoring to me. And as said in the past show, the problem with that, James Harden is a better scorer than Kyrie Irving. That's the thing about it. I hear you. I hear you, Jack. And, and we keep talking. He's about been hurt, too. James Harden's been hurt. In fairness to him, he's had the hamstring issues. That is, that's hampered him. Well, I'll tell you, the, the Nets, I don't know what they could do to change the team around and the season around. I don't think they can do anything. And I think that team will be broken up within the next two years, Jack. I don't well, think we talk about the, the Nets. 
The Nets, yes, the Nets. The Nets. Well, let's see today what's going on. If they make a deal with the Sixers, and I would make the deal, actually, if I can get Ben Simmons, uh, you know, a couple of number one draft picks back, you know, I think I'd make the deal. If I could get Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, you know, and a number one pick, I'd make the deal. I mean, I would, listen, I would trade Kyrie Irving if someone would take him and I could get good value. Yeah. I would trade Kyrie Irving, I think, for Ben Simmons. And I think Kyrie Irving goes to the sixes whenever he's ready to play full time. You match him with Joe Lambie, they'd be absolutely awesome. Well, we'll see what happens, Shaq. We know this has been tried in the past. Uh, two players, I think it was Peyton and uh, Carl Malone, went to the Lakers to try to win a championship, and that didn't work out too. They well. were past their primes, though. Yes. That's the, that's the difference. Yeah. Harden's getting Harden's getting up there too, Jack. So uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, he's not a spring chicken anymore. So. Well, he's not past his prime yet. No, well, listen, true. just quickly. Remember when the Nets got Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and they gave up basically their future, all those yeah. picks. I was actually, and I was wrong, completely wrong, supportive of that deal because the Nets were opening a new arena in Brooklyn and they had to have a representative team. And Garnett and Paul Pierce gave them that. The Nets had good teams, just not championship teams. They couldn't quite get over the hump with the Miami Heat. You know, LeBron, D-Wade, Chris Bosh, no crime there. But they really mortgaged their future making that deal. And it turned out to be a bad deal. And I'm guilty of it, too, because I was supportive of that deal at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see what happens with the regular season and the rest of the season. Of course, you know, uh, we do have uh, the trade deadline today. All-Star game is coming up one, Jack. Well, what are we talking about? Basketball. Basketball. Uh, I- I'm not... I'm not sure. I'm not okay, because sure. I know they're going to do the same nonsense they did last year with LeBron picking one team and Durant picking the other. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't. It's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not interested anyway, so we'll see. I mean, I think it's two a week after the Super Bowl on that we'll, Sunday, but um, okay. I haven't been paying it. I, it's, I, don't, I rarely watch the uh, NBA All-Star game. It's Basically, just street ball, no defense, no passing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you see the NFL All Star game? I told you, I watched it. And I gotta admit, I mean, I thought of you. And I was laughing, and I don't blame you for not watching it. You know, games of two hand touch have more contact. Yes. I mean, I'm not looking for guys to get hit hard, but you know, I, when I lost it, Mac, watching the game, I think it was Debo Samuel, a hard-nosed player from the San Francisco 49ers. I think it was him. He was on the bench eating a bag of chips, which was okay. That was his right. No one minded. It wasn't against the rules. I mean, but I kind of laughed when I saw it. Can you imagine that during a regular NFL game, a guy just sitting, relaxing with a bag of chips? You know, next thing we'll know, the guys will have, you know, a little bottle of Diet Pepsi, they'll be, you know, drinking that and eating a sandwich or whatever. But yeah, the game not? itself, it was it was not just basically like flag football and two hand touch. Flag football would have been more interesting. I, from what I heard, than that. I, I told you, I, I, last year after last year, I, I will not watch a Pro Bowl game again. See, the problem is, Jack, with that, is that 
to get Hall of Fame credentials, they look at how many Pro Bowls you were, you know, you were nominated to be on and, and selected to be on. And that's, you know, that's part of the Hall of Fame uh, uh, qualifications. But what I say is just vote them. Let them pay for their own vacations. Just vote for them saying they're the best. Let's not make a sham of football. That's all I'm saying. You know what it is, too? Uh, our guy who does our, the Sunday show with us, Jim Jeffcoat, believe it or not, he never made a pro Bowl team in his whole career, yet mm-hmm. he was on the ballot mm-hmm. for the Hall of Fame. It's very hard to get on the ballot. Only elite players get onto the ballot. And then right. they vote on them. And then, like Jim even mentioned, it has to say whether you get in the Hall of Fame. And so they look at Jeff Coates' credentials once he's on the ballot to vote us and say, oh, he never made a Pro Bowl, so they don't vote for him. Let's say they saw he made five Pro Bowls, but he was the same player he was. Okay? Chances are he would have gotten in by now. So uh, I think it's a rarity. I've never heard of a case outside of gyms of a guy who was never an all-star, never a pro bowler, making it onto the ballot, you know, actually, yeah. the Hall of Fame. I told you before, Jack, Jim is the best defensive end in Cowboys history, bar none. His, but his, when his, they vote. Prove it. But again, you know, Jim even talked about this. this is but when they vote, they take a look and they see no Pro Bowls, yeah. and that has to hurt them. Plus, Jim, I'm sure, would have liked the honor of at least one time participating in the Pro Bowl, saying, yeah. oh, I'm a former Pro Bowl player. He sure. can't say that. He can't say he's a Hall of Famer. But we know what a great player he was. But the honors just haven't quite come to him uh you know, the way they should have. Carlos brought, brings up, you know, talking about eating chips, Debo. Your your boy Sanchez ate a hot dog. You imagine Mark, Chance, Mark Sanchez was a pro bowler. But anyway, um, it reminded me when you said something like that of the, the famous picture of Don Meredith after he came off the field on a bench smoking a cigarette. That was – I've never seen anything like that. That was, that was know, tremendous. I wonder they, listen, I wonder what they find – guys today for certain of the things they did. They once fired this coach, Frank Vogel. He was a very funny, funny guy. Very funny. And a fan behind him was kind of giving it to him, ribbing him, but in a fun way, in a a humorous way. And then he says, can I get, he says, I'm going to concessions. Can I get you anything? And Vogel says, get me a hot dog and beer. The guy comes back with it for it. And Frank Vogel's eating and he's drinking it. Well, and he got fine for it, but Vogel said he liked it. But it was a funny interaction. Stuff like that kind of endears you to fans in a way. Sure, 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 of course. So let's do the NHL standings real quick um, in the uh, top four of each division. Atlantic, uh, you have the Panthers at 32-10, and 10, Tampa Bay at 30-10, and 10, Toronto tied with them at 30-10. and 10. You have Boston at 26-15. and 15. That's your top four in Atlantic. The Metropolitan, you have the Hurricanes, the Rangers, Pittsburgh and the Capitals in the top four right now. In the Central, the Avalanche is 32 and 8. Predators are 28 and 15. The Wild, 28 and 11. The Blues, 26 and 13. And in the Pacific Division, the Knights, 28 and 17. The Kings, 24 and 16. The Ducks, 23 and 16. And the Calgary Flames, 24 and 13. 
uh, pretty tight over there right now, especially for second place. So that's that's your standings. I really quick look at the games. There weren't many. Uh, yeah, Detroit. and I have a few hockey, no, a little news on hockey. Yeah, yeah. Detroit beat Philly six to three. The Stars beat the Predators four to three. Chicago beats the Oilers four to one, and the Calgary Flames shut out. The Golden Knights, six to nothing. What you got? Jim? Yeah, we had a little news. The Bruins' uh, Brad Marchand was suspended for six games for high-sticking uh, the Penguin goalie, Tristan Jarry. And that's very dangerous, the high-stick. People don't realize how sharp that stick is. So kudos to the NHL. He was a repeat offender, Brad Marchand. And the six-game suspension, that, that stings a player. It's not just one game, not two games. To sit out six games and not get paid. I wonder whether the teams sometimes pay the guy. They're not supposed to. That's a good question there. Uh, the Islanders, okay, they had a barrage of goals in the beginning of the game, and they beat uh, Vancouver 6-3 yesterday. They scored four goals in the first uh, you know, three, three, four minutes. They had a barrage of goals. And the Islanders, if you look carefully at their record, they're not as bad as we think they've been this year because they're playing 500 hockey. Not good at all. Way below the Islanders' standards, but not actually terrible. But the, and, and the Islanders also have a lot of games in hand. They play less games than a good number of other teams, meaning the opportunities there for them to make up some points. But it's going to be like, you know, tough to get in the playoffs that way. Oh, Scott Niedermeyer, who played 18 years in the NHL, 13 for the Devils. Okay, and they won three Stanley Cups when he was with them, and then five for the Anaheim Ducks. And they won one Stanley Cup with him, was hired as a special advisor to the Anaheim Ducks. You know, that's a pretty good run. 18 years with two teams, winning a total of four Cups with both teams. And the Canadians, last thing, they fired their coach, Dominique Ducarme. Uh, In all fairness to the Canadian organization, Ducarme... He's lost, as coach, the Canadians lost twice as many as they won with him as the coach, going back to when he was named the interim coach last year. But they went on a magical run last year and went to the finals with him as interim coach. So they signed him to a three-year deal, and then they fired him this year. But look, if he's getting paid for the rest of this year, and he's getting paid for two more years after that, you know, that's not a bad deal to have. You know, you could go somewhere, relax, be on vacation, be financially secure. So I'm sure there's, you know, there you know, can't be know, complaints there. You know what drives me crazy, Jack, in all sports? Teams get rid of players that are, you know, that are reason the reason for you to be so good one year. And then they turn around and they fire the coach after the team doesn't perform like it did the year before. This happens in a lot of sports, uh, all sports across the board, where the coach is sitting there. He does a great job bringing you, doing, being competitive one year. Of course, the Canadians, as you said, made it all the way to the finals with a certain team. The next year, the, the management doesn't either sign them or make them happy or gets rid of them. Then they say to the coach, well, why, why aren't you winning like you did last year? In fact, we're going to fire you. That drives me out of my mind. I don't, the, the people that should be fired 
are the ones that are doing the firing right now. Those are the ones that should be fired. Well, you know what it is, Mac? It's the team's culture which determines how long a team's go, a, a coach, a manager is going to be there. If a team has a losing culture and the owner just basically cares about the finances, his bottom line, and the fan base is an outrage, they're used to the losing culture. A manager can kind of survive. It depends the backing he has. Listen, let's take a look at the Miami Marlins, uh, for example. Don Manning, at least their manager. Derek Jeter's the CEO, makes the decisions. Derek Jeter reveres Don Manningly. He really likes him a lot. And, and they're building. He understands they're young players. It takes time. But last year, the Marlins were a big disappointment. They made the playoffs the year before that. But you can only wait on your young prospects so long. After a while, they stop becoming prospects. Then what happens with your manager, coach? What's the excuse? You kind of want to change the culture of the organization. You know, you want some type of change. But I'm going to tell you, Mac, in the vast majority of cases, uh, a change doesn't work. Maybe temporarily. Like, like the Atlanta Hawks last year in basketball, they fire their head coach. They have Nate McMillan take over. The Hawks went on a nice run. Okay, they beat the Sixers in the playoffs. They went to the East Finals where they lost to the Milwaukee Bucks. But it was a great run, you know. They beat the Knicks early in the playoffs. This year, the Hawks have been mediocre on the Nate McMillan. They just haven't progressed from last year. So what are you supposed to do? I mean, it's uh, – and you know what it is, too. Let's say there's approximately most squad leagues, there are 30 teams per league, let's say on average. Uh, what you you mean to tell me? Uh, there are only ten good coaches. After you get past ten coaches, the twenty fifth best coach is he all of a sudden a bad coach? The only good coaches are the ones that win. I mean, it, it, it's not an easy it's not well, an easy thing to figure out. There's got to be a goal, Jack. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the Hawks not playing good this year and they got an interim coach. What I'm talking about is say the Hawks got rid of their three main players. And then they turn around and fire the Hawks coach because the Hawks aren't playing well this year. That's what they did with the Canadian. So, I mean, I don't know how you penalize a coach when you're the one that made the moves or didn't make the moves. That's not who should be fired. The guy that didn't make the moves or made moves to make the team weaker is the one that should be fired. Now, you said it best. You said it best on the past show. You used the key word, relationships. That's the key word. If the GM has a great relationship with a coach, a coach is going to survive longer. Look, uh, the GM uh, patent on the uh, Denver Broncos, he had a great relationship with the coach, Vince Fangio, and Fangio survived a few years, at least a couple of extra years more than he may have with another GM because of the relationship was tight. You get the feeling with the Yankees. There's the feeling that Brian Cashman likes Aaron Boone a lot. It's a very good relationship. He has Aaron Boone's back. back. I mean, he's going to stay with him as long as he possibly can. Look, for every reason not to fire the guy, 
It's, it's all relationships. And Brian Cashman's relationship with Joe Girardi was starting to become a little tense. They got rid of Girardi, even though they came one game from going to the World Series. They overachieved. They moved on from Joe Torrey because the relationship with Cashman became strained. You know, so I think that's the key, whether a guy stays with an organization or not. It's relationships. I mean, it starts with the owner first. If the owner is very impulsive, and you have to understand these owners, Mac, they've been tremendously successful in life. They've made a fortune of money. They're not used to losses. And they sometimes treat their sports franchise like they would a business and if they see that business is losing money, they look at how the team performs and they see if that team isn't performing as well. They, you know, they, they feel a change is in order and they're going to make a change. And the victim oftentimes could be the coach, whether it's his fault or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know if uh, all the owners that way. In fact, I don't think half the owners really care about his winning as, as some of them, Jack, even... Jim Jeffcoat said, you know, that, you know, Jerry Jones one time told him maybe there's about a dozen owners that really, really want to win, that are willing to do what it takes to win uh, in football. Because uh, most of these owners, they do it as, you know, if you're successful, a lot of people want to buy toys, Jack, right? They want to be famous for something. They want to bring their kids and family and friends to a place of, for example, Keep it real basic, right? This guy owns a construction company. He's a millionaire. He'll buy a restaurant, even though he does not, nothing about the restaurant business, just to say he has that restaurant. And so his wife can bring his friend or friends there and they can bring their family there. And look what I have. And I think a lot of rich people have a lot of money and, and they're doing really well. And they say, well, you know something? I'd like to own a football team or I'd like to own a baseball team or whatever. You know, and this is just something to, to it's like a trophy wife or a trophy husband. Right. This is what I have. And I think a lot of in a lot of cases, Jack, because you see some of the teams just don't perform well. Never. And for, the only reason for that is the owner. The owner could, the owner can do something about it if he wants. But I don't think they really I don't think they really were. They don't like the team losing. But, hey, you know, it's not it's not number one on the priority list, Jack. Mac, it kind of makes me laugh of a story. I was once introduced to someone by chance, and they told that person I was involved in boxing. And the person bragged to me, it was a businessman. He says, I own a piece of a fighter. And he told me how much he was paying to his partner, you know, in the fight. But I also knew if the fighter got to be really good in the money maker, this businessman was going to get cut out of the picture. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't my business. I didn't comment. And I just thought to myself, I mean, what a fool. He's paying all this money for the fighters, you know, living expenses, this and that. But he doesn't know anything about his partner's reputation or whatever. And it, it, yeah. it, nothing came of it for this guy. I know that. But it wasn't my business to, you know, to say anything because it was an informal discussion. But the guy was gloating, like you're yeah. saying, I own a piece of a fighter. He had no idea about anything in the boxing business, not the mm -hmm. slightest clue what was going on, but he could brag. He owned a piece of a fighter. He can go to the fight, go there with his friends. He could brag and say, that's my fighter. 
Sure. Okay. But when it started, but if it ever was going to get lucrative, he wasn't going to be along for the whole ride. I knew that. No, you know. No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. But again, it's like a trophy. You know, this is what I do. exactly. But the fighter never, the fighter never got to the high, you know, status. So that theory wasn't tested in his case. Yes. Yes. So let's continue with the NFL a little bit, and and, and football in general. I want to get this in here real quick. Um, college football advocacy group has filed with the national board of relations to have college players treated as employees, uh, for collective bargaining for competitive pay and different benefits. Jack, I knew this was coming. I told everybody that would listen the next logical step after paying for their likeness and giving a portal. So these players can, can go from one team to another that this was the next logical step, that they would try to unionize, and I believe they will. So, and it's got its good points and bad points, right? Some of these players will never make it to the NFL, and at least they'll make some money. Of course, I don't know how long they'll hold on to it, but at least they'll, they'll get paid for a little bit of what they do. Injuries, they might get a little, little insurance. Of course, they'll have to be vested. There's a lot of different things that go into this. But the thing I want to talk about is, okay, the Pacific, say the Pac-10, they decide that they're not getting the right amount of pay or competitive benefits, so they're going to strike. They're not playing any games. Will the rest of the leagues or divisions follow? They would have to to make it work. And are we going to be looking at down the road as a possible college sports strike in any of the sports? And, Jack, something to think about too. Big schools might be able to afford this, but will the smaller schools be able to afford something like this? Mac, I don't know and I don't care, quite honestly, because the NCAA historically was so ridiculously selfish and they were so restrictive of what these athletes can do, totally bullying them for, you know, uh, yes. you know since their existence, yes that now it's coming back to bite them. Is it going to ruin college sports to the extent? I don't know, but you want, you want another truth of the matter. There are two ways to look at it. You could look at college sports, especially college basketball, college football, as the minor leagues of those sports, okay? You don't look at baseball. college baseball as the minor leagues of Major League Baseball because they have their minor leagues, Uh and when a player graduates college, no matter how good he is, he normally goes to one of the team's minor league affiliates before he goes to the majors. Sure. But, in the, but they go to the NFL straight from college. They go to the NBA usually straight from college. And listen, if they're using a player's likeness and they're making all this money, should he get that money, you know, part of it? And I say, yeah, but if he's a scholarship player, I feel the money should go towards paying off the scholarship first, okay? And then once the scholarship is paid off, there should be something set up where both parties profit, the university and the player, because he is getting the money while he is representing the university. So I think they should get a cut of the profits but I feel the players should be able to in a way. I mean, listen, Mac, these are college kids. They need money. 
I mean, how much are they going to make a year? A lot of them. I'm not talking about the few stars who can make a lot. I'm talking about the vast majority. Let's say they can make, you know, 40000 a year on the side, okay, playing their likeness, whatever. They need things. They need a car. They need clothes, you know, and it's good for them to put a little money in the bank, okay, as well. Nothing wrong with yeah, that. Well, Jack, I, and, and I agree with that point to a point. I mean, if you're going to – if this is what's going to happen, then why – should they have their school paid for then? If they're going to get paid, if they're a scholarship athlete and they're going to get paid $40,000 a year, why should the school pick up their... No, the school shouldn't. Let me finish. So, Ian, you know that if they do unionize, that it is this opens it up also to civil rights, which means not only are the college basketball players and football players going to get paid, so are the volleyball players, so it's Title IX, so are the rowers, so are the tennis players. I mean, that's the legal aspect of this. So I'm not saying that is a bad idea. I'm saying that there's going to be a lot of questions, that it's going to be a big mess for a long time. I don't know if it will work or not the way a lot of people are envisioning this might work. I just think this is going to be this is going to be something that's going to cause a lot, a lot of problems, Jack. A lot of problems. The pay with the likeness has already been it's already done. That's done. That's already the law. So they're, they're getting that. I'm talking about when they start going for competitive pay and collective bargaining powers. It's a whole new ballgame. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, I agree with you. But like I said a little while ago, part of the deal has to be. Any scholarship student has to pay their scholarship. Let's say they have a scholarship for argument's sake that's worth $150,000, and they're going to the university for four years, okay? $150,000 is the value. But I'm just throwing a total. The first $150,000 they make has to go back to the university, I feel, or there's got to be a 50-50 deal there where half the money they're making is going back to the university. So let's say it's a player who's a real star player and his value is 300,000. 150 goes back to the university, pays for the scholarship, and he keeps 150, you know, something along those lines. We'll see. That, that's, that's an interesting, interesting concept. Let's, let's talk a little bit, and I don't like talking about other networks on my show, or other hosts of shows on other networks on my show. Um, but this, and I and I wasn't listening to it, Jack. I don't listen to this show. I heard a promo on radio. I listen to a lot of different sports uh, on radio, especially. But this, uh, I guess he's famous. He played in the NFL. He has a morning show. And he made this statement. Now, I know people make ridiculous statements to be controversial, but there has to be some meat to it. I mean, it has to it has to make some sense. And this host said that if head coach of the Rams, McVay, doesn't win the Super Bowl, it will be derogatory to his career. Now, mind you, he's only been in the league four or five years. This is his second Super Bowl appearance. And that if he doesn't win it, he'll be known as a loser. And that will affect his, of course, his, you know, his his legacy. Now, of course, he's only been coaching this. Why don't you want to, which host was it, Matt? You well, know you, you, you've watched him. 
But was it Stephen A? No, no, it's not Stephen A. Stephen A. I don't even think would make a comment like this. Was it but Max? He, he's a me. He's a me guy. No, Max is the only one that made sense on that show. So this. Oh, Keyshawn Johnson. This dude says something so foolish, makes him sound like he knows nothing about football. Never mind playing in the NFL. But he says something so ignorant that. I was almost I almost wanted to hit the radio. In other words, Jack, this is what he's saying. That Marv Levy, Levy that Bud Grant and that Dan Reeves are not good coaches, they're losers. They're not great coaches. So a guy that has only coached, I think he's in his first fifth year, goes to two Super Bowls, unheard of. If he loses this Super Bowl, he's gonna be considered a loser. It's a nonsensical remark. I mean, listen, you, you coach five years in the league and you go to two Super Bowls, that's a pretty darn good body of work, okay? That's a pretty good body of work. And listen, winning a Super Bowl is so hard. Look at all the years certain coaches have coached and how many Super Bowls have they won? You know, I said Mike Tomlin at this time, in my opinion, strictly my opinion, is the best coach in the NFL. Bill Belichick, you could say, his whole body of work is greater than Tomlin. So I would rate him ahead of Tomlin on an all-time list of great coaches. But I'm just talking at the present time, at this moment, Tomlin's number one to me. But he's only won one Super Bowl. One mm -hmm. Super Bowl, and he's a great coach. Uh, Andy Reid's a heck of a coach. He's only won one Super Bowl. I mean, you go down the list, it's so hard to win a Super Bowl. Belichick spoiled us all, winning all those Super Bowls. We think that should be the norm for great coaches, but it's not. There are 32 teams in the league. Hypothetically, your chances of winning a Super Bowl should just be one out of 32. Long shot odds. So to go to two Super Bowls in five years is great. Would it be highly disappointing if the Rams don't win it? Yes, it would. Uh, for the simple reason, they have the equivalent of an all-star team in a certain sense with big-name players, even more so than the Bengals. And the Rams were expected to be a serious Super Bowl contender going into the year. The Bengals were not. I, very few people could see this coming with the Bengals. If I predicted in the beginning of the year the Cincinnati Bengals were going to the Super Bowl, that would have been the most optimistic of predictions. It was it was a tremendous long shot for that to happen. So even if the Bengals lose, their head coach, Zach Taylor, is going to be hailed as doing a, a sensational job with the Bengals this year. But if... Uh, if they lose, you know, the Rams, Sean McVay, it, it's going to be a blow. It's going to be a big disappointment without a question. But no one's going to look at him, oh, he's a loser. He's not a good coach. You know, they'll just be dis disappointed that they didn't finish the job.
I think that the Bengals coaching staff and players would be too. I don't care if it's their first one or not. You only Although get so many, hurt, but what you, I'm you, saying, you, you only get so many shots. Jack, you know something? If yeah. you look at the Cowboys, it looks like they have an all-star team. If you looked at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it looks like they have an all-star team, right? I mean, it, you could say, Super Bowl. Uh, you could say, but I'm saying this. I'm saying this. I'm saying this year, Jack, they still had an all-star team if you look at them. There's a lot of teams out there that have a lot of talent that you could consider all-star teams that don't get there. So I, to me, to me again, the only reason why I pointed it out is because some, some statement like that shouldn't go unchecked. It wasn't really unchecked, but I, I wanted to make sure that people kind of heard this comment to see who they're listening to. A guy that just wants to be controversial and has and, and supposedly was a good NFL wide receiver. Um, you know, he was he was good. I ain't gonna take that away from him. Well, we're talking about Keyshawn Johnson here. I can mention his name. You know, my beef with Keyshawn Johnson, I had mixed feelings on him. When he was a player, I want to give him his credit. When he was on the field, he played hard, he blocked tenaciously, he blocked, okay. Mm-hmm. He did things like he should have, but he was an eye guy. I could never quite forgive him for his attitude towards Wayne Corbett when they were with the uh, Jets. They were the equivalent, uh, you know, what, what the Rams, you know, have right now with, you know, their wide receivers. And instead of embracing it, okay, embracing it and being with Wayne Corbett a great one-two punch, you know, Keyshawn Johnson had to be the guy. He was resentful. The ball was thrown to Wayne Corbett. He put down his teammate publicly all the time. And it was a distraction. He was, he was a lousy teammate. And listen, let me go a step further. We had Jim Jeffcoat on this show. He was He's very familiar with the Cowboys, obviously. And when he was involved with them, and part, you know, uh, Keyshawn Johnson was supposedly there, and and Jeff Colt was saying what a distraction Keyshawn was. He was a selfish guy. He was a night guy in that yeah. way. And you know what it is in these broadcasting gigs, Matt? The players who've been lightning rods, who've been distractions and trouble, that's who the networks like to sometimes hire, the big-mouthed guys, Okay. The obnoxious, big-mouthed guys who created turmoil to an extent. And even if they weren't, guys who had issues, put it that way. Listen, Michael Irvin's got his life together. Kudos. I enjoy listening to him. He had a lot of issues. He's on the air. Keyshawn, the ultimate eye guy. You know, he had issues. He's on the air. And I think he does a good job talking. I, I enjoy listening to him the times I do. But I, I, but I do find it hard sometimes to take the network seriously. When, they, when John Gruden, for example, got let go, basically, or was forced to resign, they had Keyshawn Johnson evaluate ESPN John Gruden. Well, Keyshawn Johnson left the Buccaneers because he was feuding with John Gruden. He can't be an objective observer. That's insane. And yet they have Keyshawn up there talking. I mean, it's kind of like pathetic. Look for Antonio Brown to get signed by one of the major networks. That's a good point. It's one of the analysts because he brings attention. And 
never mind the way he's acted has been, you know, highly inappropriate at times. That doesn't matter. You're very, it's very true, Jack. You know, you can go out and you can name, you know, Michael Vick and you can name uh, Randy, Randy Moss in that category too. They both do good jobs, but they are very, uh, uh, they're lightning in a bottle. And, you know, sometimes I think it's better to go with, uh, well, I'm going to leave. I'm just leaving it. Well, at that. Michael Vick, they had one horrendous thing against him, mm-hmm. but he's, you know, he's tried to get his life together. I, really I, I, I agree. I agree. He Roger Pradell has said good things about him. You know, yeah, he's, I, I, I honestly think he's extremely remorseful over the terrible, you know, thing that went on. Now, now before we, uh, before we get to our break here, like I said, I, I will try to call uh, Bobby Goodman live on air to see if we can get him on speaker and interview him that way. Uh, he's just had eye operations, so it's very hard for him to come in video and, and do what it takes. So we're going to give that a shot after we get back. A, uh, a player uh, has said, a, man, a, a potential player of the year, man of the year, whatever you want to call him, has said that he would love to sit down and talk with Adolf Hitler. Jack, I... I don't know what to say about that. I just think it's foolish. I don't know if you have any comments on it before we go to break. But uh, Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Allen, the defensive end of the Washington, uh, is the name commanders now. Okay? Uh, he's an NFL. Listen, he's on the short list, the NFL man of the year. He won it last year something. I don't pay attention to usually wins the man of the year award. Shame on me because it is an important award named after Walter Payton. So whoever wins it does have my high respect. And what he was asked, Jonathan Allen, just he was answering questions from fans or something on Twitter. Name like three people you'd like to have dinner with. And if they ask me that question spur the moment, I don't know who I'd answer myself. But the one he named, I think, was his grandfather or something. I don't know whether he met him ever. Michael Jackson and Adolf Hitler. And he said Hitler was a military genius and blah, blah, blah. But he said he'd like to ask Hitler why he did what he did. I think Jonathan Allen, I don't, the way it sounded, it was just, he was kind of, I don't want to use the word misinformed. I don't think the impact hit him, the severity of how terrible Hitler was at that moment and to sit down and have dinner. Can you imagine one of us was asked, Matt, three people who we'd like to sit down and have dinner with. If we said it was the police officer who was convicted of killing George Floyd, if we named him as one of the three, Matt, we'd be fired. We'd be off the air. The outrage would be incredible. We could apologize all we want. It would do no good. But with that said, I hope Jonathan Allen is just uh, forgiven for it for the most part. I really do. I hope he is forced by the NFL to just spend one day at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and that's it. No fine. He has to go there for a full day, see what it's all about. Jonathan Allen apologized. He said Hitler is one of the worst people in in mankind. He didn't mean it the way it came up. after you get caught, people do apologize. Sometimes 
they're sincere about their apology. Sometimes it's to just cover their rear end, and sometimes it's a combination of both, you know, at the end. But I'm not going to go into, you know, I'm not going to go into my own personal feelings exactly on this thing. I, I might do that someday on the show. But I hope with Jonathan Allen, you know, as long as he understands, people make mistakes. I hate the cancer culture, Mac. I like to look at the guy's body of work, his body of behavior. And if a guy has a good body of behavior and he's a good humanitarian, but he says something foolish, you know, let's work along with him. Let's forgive him if we can, as long as we feel he understands the error of his ways. Okay, well said, Jack. Folks, we're going to take a quick break on the other side. We'll try to get Bobby Goodman on with us. There was no relationship to Benny. And uh, later on the show, we got Russell Peltz, Hall of Fame promoter, great author. I'll uh, be in to talk about his book, new book, $30 and a Black Eye. So that's going to be great having him on. We'll be right back after these messages, folks. You worked too hard, you ate too much, the cheesecake made you greedy. Let your aching ears and stomach hear this message from old Speedy. Alka-Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Those Speedy bubbles relieve your upset stomach and headache fast. For acid indigestion alone, Alka-Seltzer gold. Oh, what a relief it is. What a relief. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. <laughs> to alcohol, kids make choices whether to drink or not. Bye, Dad. Bye-bye. Remember, I'm going to Alex's party tonight and sleeping over. Hey, Ann, have a seat for a second. Remind me about that party again. Alex is just and adults make choices whether to talk about it. That's true of parents and every other trusted adult in a kid's life. Kids want to know our expectations when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. They want guidance and honest answers to their questions. And it makes a difference when the message is consistent and part of everyday conversations. So talk with your kids and help lead them on a positive path. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. My baloney has the first name. It's O S C A R. My baloney has a second name. It's M A Y E R. 
I called drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Come on, it's the first offense, right? That we know of. But why should that matter? He knew not to drink. I've made it clear to Matt that that's what we expect from him. What have you said to Tim? Um, nothing really. You know, a lot of kids try it at this age, so... I... Yeah, well, a lot of kids don't try it, too. I'm not saying that Matt's going to be this perfect kid, but if I don't tell him what we expect and why he shouldn't drink... How's he gonna know? You think kids that age really listen? <laughs> they never admit it, Bill. But they hear more than you think. Talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with kids about underage drinking, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Hey, Bobby, how you doing? You ready to come on here with us? Okay, hold on one second. Let me bring this down. Take down my music. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show here on our Thursday show. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, the great legendary boxing writer himself, Jack Hirsch. And on the phone right now, we have Bobby Goodman. He's a famous, famous Hall of Fame boxing inductee, a matchmaker, if you will, who uh, did a lot of great matches back then. He had some private clients like Bob Foster and Ken Norton. Uh, he started way back when in the early uh, AFL, believe it or not, with the New York Titans, who uh, became the New York Jets. He worked in public relations back then. And we got him on and want to talk a little boxing with him. So how are you doing today, Bobby? Good, good. Good to be with you guys. Hey, you know, one thing, uh, Mac, that Bobby had a great mentor because his dad, okay, was one of the great PR guys of all time. So he learned from his dad, and that transition took place over to Bobby, who did a heck of a job himself there. And he was more than a PR guy. Bobby ran the Madison Square Garden Boxing Department. Right. And when yours truly was a young reporter, it was a treat to go to a lot of the shows that uh, Bobby put on. Yes, sir. So, Bobby, can you hear Jack good? But that's okay. Yeah. Bobby didn't listen to me much back in the day, so I guess it's force a habit. I mean, never really took my suggestions much, but he was smart not to. Grow on people, little by little, little by little. I I, I talk to you more. <laughs> so so Bobby, uh, Jack mentioned, you know, of all the things that you've done in your career. Of course, like I said, in the Boxing Hall of Fame. 
Um, you, you work, you work direct. Excuse me. You worked, you worked directly with uh, Bob Arum uh, of Top Rank and and Don King of Don King Productions. Uh, So, so when you worked with these two guys, how different were they, uh, Bobby? I mean, you know, uh, they seem very different. When I've, I've, I've talked to Bob. I've never talked to Don. But, you know, Bob seems like a, a very straight shooter uh, where Don didn't seem that way. PR guy back in the day, you didn't have the advantages of social media that you have, you know, in the modern era. I mean, imagine if you were a PR guy today, how you get the word out as opposed to back in the day. Uh, how was it back in the day where posters would be a big thing? Just hanging up a poster, that's unheard of today. No one's going to hang up a poster. important to an extent but not that important for big fights it's the live gate that used to be a thing where most of the money would come from but in this day and age it's television money pay-per-view like you affiliated with uh one of the great light heavyweight champions of all time bob forster most of his fights, I mean, especially fights in Scranton, Pennsylvania against Hal, Hal Carroll and Tommy Hicks when he defended his title, 
Foster's money came strictly from the live gate. That that would be unheard of today. Yeah, you know, when you consider guys like Bob Foster, who I think was the greatest light heavyweight ever lived, uh, guys like Bob Foster today would have to be fighting heavyweights. Uh, Bob tried it, but he couldn't. He couldn't gain any weight. He he trained for six months trying to gain weight for the Ali fight, and uh, he drank beer. I heard for that fight to try to gain weight. Is that true? Is what? I heard he drank beer to try to put on some pounds. He always drank. Bob always drank beer. <laughs> Through his career, he drank a couple of beers. It helped him keep his weight up. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, That's let, crazy. Me, let me just call Mac. I want Bob, Bobby Goodman to comment on this because Frank Letourzo and myself got into a debate on our show, Glove Fist. Bobby, I do. we do a Monday night show on the network, Glove Fist, with my co-host Frank Letourzo. Very knowledgeable guy. Very smart guy. But we got into a debate about Bob Foster, and he was telling me, well, Marvin Johnson could hit as hard as Bob Foster. He said Michael Spinks would have beaten Bob Foster, Dwight Muhammad Khan. We would have beaten Bob Foster. This guy would have acknowledged Foster was a great fighter, great, great fighter. But he gave me a number of guys he said could hit as hard as Foster would have beaten him. What's your feeling on that? Greatest punching light heavyweight I had ever seen. He could punch with the heavyweights. After his fight with uh, Ali, uh, I was very close with Ali as well. Ali came over to me and says, Boy, I sure am glad he couldn't gain 10 pounds. He'd have had me out. <laughs> what was it? What was it like, Bobby? I mean, Ken Norton was was one of the top four back in the seventies. You had Ali, Foreman, Frazier, and Norton. They were like yeah. that was the kings there at the time. Ken Norton was very unorthodox the way he fought. I mean, he had a decent jab. He had some power. What was it like working? Yeah. What was it like working with him, Bobby? Well, Ken was Ken was a super nice guy who would uh, learn his boxing mainly in the Marine Corps over in the San Diego area where he was stationed. He played he played all sports. He was a great athlete. He was a world class hurdler. He was also playing football, could have played anywhere. And uh, and chose boxing. He uh, he had real good power. Ken was a little bit of a, a little bit of a head case, you know. If he if he felt like he was gonna win going in, if he had great confidence going into a fight, you had to kill him to beat him. Um, that was like those three fights with Ali. I'm not sure Ali beat him yet, yeah. but uh, they were they were three great fights. Three of the best. And, uh, and Ken Norton's fight with. Larry Holmes was an all-time classic. I agree. That's, uh, that's 15 rounds of boxing you're never going to see again. Bobby, that 15th round of Holmes Norton was arguably the greatest round in boxing history because it was, took place in the 15th round and they were going at it nonstop. 
I mean, that 15th round to me, at least in my books, the greatest single round because of how late it took place in the fight. Oh, it was unbelievable. It was, it was, it was hard to believe that these two great athletes still had enough to go at it like that in the 15th round. And they went at it toe to toe. Uh, it was, uh, it was something, but in that fight, in that particular fight, they kept changing round after round after round. Norton would win this round, then Holmes would come back with a good round, then Norton would come back with another good round, and it was, it was an amazing fight. Truly uh, there's a talk, when Ali beat Foreman in Zaire, he beat him using the rope of dope. There was talk that before the fight, you and Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer, was in the ring, and you were playing with the ropes to make them loose or something, so Ali could lean back on them, so, you know, to make Foreman miss a little more. All, all sorts of stories emanated from that, Jack. <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter is, we had to bring, well, I, I had to come with a special plane very early to set up the gym and to set up the ring uh, in Zaire. Uh, and when we set up the ring, and knowing it was outdoors in all that heat, it was very hot in Zaire. Uh, we set up the ring and we just left the ropes nice and loose so we could tighten them later, so there's room to tighten them later. Um, and we didn't want to put the padding and the canvas down because it would get mushy in that sun. Um, they didn't follow it. We went to the stadium that afternoon to check and the ring and the canvas were already down. The ropes were set up and they had tightened them up. Now naturally they're new ropes and you got a and you got a new canvas and padding out there, which is a foam which is a foam substance and it got all mushy. And the ropes had to be tightened now. We told them to leave them alone. And they would, you, could, you couldn't even tighten them up now because they had stretched out. Mm -hmm. So we had to reconfigure the ropes, take them apart, and pull them, pull them all the way tight, and then just hand tighten them so they didn't stretch out anymore. Um, and, and, and it wasn't that we were doing anything sneaky because sitting right there watching us was... Dick Sadler, Sandy Sadler, Archie Moore, who were all foreman's people, sitting in the first row. We said, come on, guys, you want to help? And Angelo and I were crawling around the ring like, <laughs> like rugrats. <laughs> so they didn't do anything. And, and Ali didn't know that. You know, a fast ring was to Ali's benefit. And sure enough, the first round, since they didn't follow our instructions, the first round, Ali felt the padding on the foot was very mushy. So 
he knew he couldn't dance for 12 or 15 rounds. Um, and the same thing with the ropes. He backed up against the ropes and Foreman threw a big right hand and he leaned back and it missed him by a half a foot. So while, while Angelo, while Angelo and the corner people are trying to tighten the ropes, Ali is saying, leave him alone, leave him alone. Because Ali had forged his, his ring strategy with the loose ropes. Now he could lean back and Foreman would miss the shot. So, so we left the, we left the ring ropes alone. He's, he's, he didn't dance because he couldn't. So uh, he more or less plotted and let George beat himself out. But uh, George was so strong. I, I'm amazed to this day how Ali took all those shots from George early in the fight. Yeah. But Ali took such a good punch. He was amazing. Yeah, he was. He's amazing. What are what are some of the biggest fights that you matched up in Madison Square Garden? Give me give me like your top three, uh, Bobby. Oh my God! Uh, that I matched up. I, I guess I guess I'd have to say uh, um, one of mine because I knew how how closely matched these guys were uh, was. Uh, Sweet Pea Whitaker and Buddy McGirt. That was a great one. But Buddy had, Buddy had just had uh, had shoulder surgery. He tore his rotator cuff, so it wasn't going to be the same. But he still, he still knocked Whitaker down. But it was uh, that was. Well, that was the second. That was the second fight he knocked Whitaker down. That was uh, the one at the. Are we talking about the one at the Garden? The first fight between the two. I was ringside, and you know, Buddy had fought a close fight. Whitaker won a close decision, so that was a you really yeah. a nice, nice matchup. Yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice match, and they knew each other well and respected each other, and. Buddy McGirt was a was a great fighter. Um, uh, you know, he won a few titles, and and uh, you had to be somebody special to beat a Buddy McGirt. He was uh, he was very underrated in my estimation. But in in the eighties and early nineties, so all, all, all during the years that you ran the Madison Square Garden boxing department. Wasn't it your job basically to develop talent for the garden, you know, because you had all those shows in the small arena, the felt forum. So you developed talent from the ground up, basically. We were doing, Jack, we were doing about a fight a week um, for years. We did one one in the garden and one outside. we had our unions we had to deal with, so we had to go beyond 200 miles to uh, to televise these these uh, fights on MSG Network, and um, we did a lot of great fights all over all over the country, and uh, a lot of them, a lot of them in the garden. You know, you found guys that, that came back with some great fights. Of course, you had guys coming up like Riddick Bowe and and um, 
championship heavyweight. Well, you had guys even on the comeback trail after Buster Douglas, after he beat Tyson and he lost his world heavyweight championship to Van the Holyfield. When he was on the comeback trail, you put him in the main event, you know, at the Felt Forum, you know, as a rebuild. Yes, I did. Yes, Holyfield fought some great fights, and so did Foreman. You know, you had you had a lot of great heavyweights during that era. You know, that's why I complain a little bit about today's breeds. Because you look up and down the top ten, and you never heard of them. Uh, back, back then, back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, the top ten looked like murderers row. Yeah. Very <laughs> true. Man. And they didn't mind fighting each other. That's that's very true, Bobby. We talk about that a lot on the show, where you don't even know they who. Fought each other. You know, it, it wasn't such a such a black eye to get a loss. Right. Yeah, but Bobby, Bobby, in all fairness, I'm going to met. Uh, we, we have on Russell Peltz after you, and sometimes some of these young fighters on the way up, it's hard to match them when they're both unbeaten. For example, Willie Monroe and Eugene Cyclone Hard in Philadelphia, they eventually did fight, but it was way past the date when they should have. One of the fights, for example, was uh, Glenwood Brown and Tunde forced on the way up. The fight could never quite come off, you know, because fighters wouldn't want to always yeah. fight one another. I used to take the uh, I used to take the train down to Philly when I was coming up just to uh, just to see the the fights in Philly with uh, Russell was putting on. He was putting on some great shows at the uh, at the Spectrum. And he had, uh, oh, guys like Johnson and, oh, man, we had some great fights. I used to like to watch Benny Briscoe. I liked watching uh, uh, all of the uh, Philadelphia fighters. Lenny Matthews was another one I watched. Matter of fact, Lenny Matthews was one of the first, uh, was one of the first title fights I did in Philadelphia. That's true. Uh, he, uh, he was with Gavilan, I think, in that fight. It was just a little bit, little bit too soon for him. Gavilan was too slick. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bobby, we got to let you go. We appreciate you coming on. We got Russell coming in after our break. Um, great talking with you. I'm glad you made it on. I love talking to people that I love boxing. Boxing is my sport right next to football that I love to watch. It's changed a lot since I was a kid. That's true. That's true. And and, and uh, you know, I, I love the sport, and I hope it somewhat gets back to where it was, where we at least know who the top contenders are. I doubt that will happen in the near future, but maybe well, so. They're trying to protect so many guys. You know, it's it's good to protect someone, but when you see great fights out there on the horizon, you got to make the match. I agree. You gotta bite the bullet. I as agree. long as you get a great fight, nobody loses. Everybody wins. Exactly. Thank you, Bobby. So there you go, folks. That was Bobby Goodman, uh, Hall of Fame matchmaker, worked in boxing for years and years and years, and was an, an instrumental in bringing us a lot of big bouts, working with both uh, Bob Arum and Don King. 
and making some unbelievable fights. I'm glad we got him on. I was only by phone because Bob, as I said, had some eye operations and it's hard for him to see. I hope the uh, audio came through pretty clear for you guys so that you heard uh, some of his words because I'll tell you, Jack, there's nothing like to me listening to people that have been in this uh, in this business for as long as the, the, our guests have been and, you know, how much boxing has changed and how much people don't realize what boxing was really about only 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, I miss the days when the posters were put up. That's how they tried to get attention for fight. You'd be walking in Manhattan and it would be on a telephone pole in a store, something, a poster, and it would catch people's attention. And young people can't comprehend that because you could get whatever you want on social media. But back in the day when you needed a dime to make a phone call to speak to someone, you had to find the phone booth. Uh, you know, I love the improvements in technology, but those posters were classics. Oh, listen, I, I, that's when promoters were really working hard and not the fighters promoting themselves, Jack, too. So maybe the promoters are happy about that. I don't know. And the live gate meant so much. And those days. Sure the live gate was everything, I should say. You could put on a great show without television in those days if it was promoted right. I agree. Uh, folks, we're going to take our last time out uh, for, for the day, for the show. And up next, he's already backstage waiting a great promoter, Hall of Famer himself, just wrote a great book. We're going to talk about that. Of course, Jack knows him fairly well. He's been on our show before when we did a big special on the fight of the century. So right after these messages, folks, we'll have the great Russell Peltz on with us. Stay tuned. I'll be ready to dig into something mighty good to eat. How do you handle a hungry man? The manhandlers. One of the manhandlers is Campbell's vegetable beef. Gets a man-sized supper off to a good hot start. Mmm, good. The manhandlers. When you hear the word asthma, you probably think of shortness of breath, coughing, or inhalers. Lots of things can trigger asthma, but the fact is that asthma doesn't just attack, it can kill. But with proper medical management, asthma is controllable. If you experience shortness of breath, wheezing, tightness in your chest, or persistent nighttime coughing, you may have asthma. See your doctor and get the facts. You'll breathe easier. For more information, call 211 InfoLine. A message from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Keeping Connecticut healthy.
can see right now, without LeBron, Lakers are, are struggling. Let me tell you about a team I hate, all right? I know the Dallas Cowboy fan is here, so I had to make sure he knew how much I hate this oh, team. Oh, I've often said that the people who run baseball, they try very hard to ruin it. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't have a problem saying it to his face. Oh, Brooklyn. Hey, isn't he? everyone and welcome back to the mac and jack sports show we're on live thursday through sunday 8 to 10 a.m live on roku right now youtube and facebook of course you know we're part of the northeast streaming sports network as they're growing all the time we're going right along with them uh folks we have a very special guest as we're covering boxing in our second hour of this show one of my passions and we got one of the i would say jack that he's one of the most influential people in boxing, maybe in the, in the last few decades, I would say, uh, Russell Peltz, a promoter uh, down in Philadelphia who does a, has done an incredible job down there. He just wrote a, a book called $30 in a Cut Eye. And there you go. Jack has it for us. So we're going to give him his plug, which he richly deserves. This it goes. Great, great book. I mean, I'm partway through it. Now. I'm one-third through it. Okay. One-third through it, and uh, wow, what a book. Well, let's bring up Russell, and let's talk to him a little bit. How you doing, Russ? Good. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on, Russell. So I want to talk to you a little bit, because we really never had you on the Mac and Jack Sports Show. We had you on the Fighter Century special, which was, you know, run at night. And I want people to get to know that that are not true boxing fans, loyal, hard-nosed, die-hard boxing fans, a little bit about Russell Peltz. So, Russell, how did you get involved in, in the boxing industry? Well, I fell in love with boxing when I was 12. And uh, my dad started watching on TV with my dad, went to my first fight when I was 14, and I I went to school for journalism. I got a job at a daily newspaper while I was a junior at Temple University in Philly, working the night shift, midnight to eight, editing copy, laying out pages. And I wanted to be the boxing writer. And Jack Freed, who was the boxing writer at the Bulletin at the time, at the time, the Bulletin was the oldest continuous afternoon newspaper in the country. And he got an extension on his retirement at 65 and I didn't, I said, I'm not going to wait for this man to die. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when you're 22 and remember I, I lived at home cause temple was a, a city school and I had a full-time job at the bulletin. So I'd saved up about $5,000 by, uh, 1969. And, you know, you can do those things. You know, my first wife, she worked at the Inquirer, which was the morning paper at her senior year. And, you just take a shot. And I, I, she said, wow, what makes you think you can do this? And I said, I'll blow the money and I'll blow the five grand in about six months. And one day we'll have this scrapbook to show our kids about the time their daddy was a boxing promoter. Russell, you talk, we hear about teams facing elimination. 
But what was fascinating, you were kind of facing that financially as a promoter. Like when you saw your dad and asked him for $1,500, telling him if you can't turn a profit, you're going back to journalism. So you were like one or two shows away from actually becoming a full-time journalist. Because if your next couple of shows lost money, that would have been it, right, in the early stages? Oh, sure. And then I got lucky with Benny Briscoe. And um, after my first season, I'm sure you read it in the book, I ran into an old-time matchmaker named Jack Puggy. That's a great name. Not his real name, but that was his boxing name. And he told me he'd been offered Benny Briscoe's contract for $2,500. Now, remember, this is 1970 now. And I acted like I, eh, that's, I wasn't interested. And I, I raced home and called my brother-in-law, who was an accountant and the paymaster at the fights. I said, you buy him, you manage him. I'll promote him. We got all these young middleweights in Philly, Boogaloo Watts, Willie the Worm Monroe, Cyclone Hart. One day they're going to have to fight Briscoe to see who's top dog in the city. Whoever controls Briscoe controls those fights, and whoever controls those fights controls boxing in Philadelphia. Yeah, but there's a little bit of a myth, Russell, that kind of came out in your book. People say, well, back in the 70s, Fighters always were willing to fight one another. You had to call a manager's meeting to push them to get their guys to fight one another because that was one of the problems. They didn't always want to fight one another. Well, that was my first year at the Spectrum. Yeah, we were hemorrhaging money. And uh, we weren't putting on the kind of fights that deserved to be put on in an 18,000-seat arena. And the president of the spectrum took me to lunch and it was ostensibly to fire me or, you know, check, see if we were going to have another year. And I said, if I can get these guys to fight each other, we can turn the program around because we lost in 1973. The spectrum loss would probably be the equivalent of about $400,000 today on the boxing program. And I called the meeting and I said, listen, if you don't start fighting each other, we're going to be back at the arena, which was a relic from the twenties, although I wish I had a place like that today, that's at 7,000. And, uh, you know, Eddie Futch was in town because Yank Dorm had died the year before and he was more amenable than Yank. Yank would have never done it for his ego. And Pop Bates, an old timer who'd worked with guys like Bud Smith and Wesley Mozan, they understood. And um, we took off and from 74, through 78, it was the Spectrum, the Garden, the Olympic, and the Forum in Inglewood, California that really controlled boxing in the country before Las Vegas really broke out. You know, it was fascinating thing. Mac is a big Joe Frazier fan. And what I found fascinating in the book was Frazier's manager slash trainer, Yank Durham, before the fight of the century against Ali, he spoke to you. He had 20 complimentary tickets from the garden because of his association with Frazier. And he wanted, rather than give them out, make money on the deal. So he kind of used you to sell them. And you just sold them at face value, even though Yank would have split the profits for you if you could have sold them over that amount. And later you wound up getting three tickets. And I would be ticked off at the one friend you left the ticket for at the hotel and he never showed up. Who can leave a ticket line there for the fight of the century? I never would have forgiven that guy. What a, oh man. You know, if I had, if I had held on to that ticket, 
just kept it as a souvenir. Be worth about four or five grand today. I have a half of a ticket from when I went where they ripped it off. Is that worth anything? Uh, I don't a couple. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Hey, hey uh, Russell, we got a couple. We got a couple of questions from Carlos Chavez, and he he wanted to know why these guys wouldn't weren't fighting each other, and was it about the rankings, or or was it just to protect it, protect their well, fighters? Let me, let me just name the example of the two of them. The fight didn't take place when it should have. Willie the Worm Monroe against Eugene Cyclone Hart. When they won the way up, oh, what a crossroads fight. That would have been like Rocky Marciano, Roland Lestaz's first fight. Everyone in Philly wanted to see it. It would have went off the rails, but it took place too late. Kind of like Pacquiao Mayweather just took place too late. By the time I, they I, don't know if I, agree. I don't know if I agree with that, Jack. They fought in February of 74. Uh, we drew over 10,000 people. They should have fought in 71, right? 72? Uh, mm, they could have, yeah, but it, it wasn't like Pacquiao Mayweather. I mean, you know. I mean, Hart, from there, Hart went on to fight that great draw with Briscoe. See, fighters in those days, if you lost the fight, it wasn't the end of the world like it is today. That's why they should have fought earlier, because well, it wasn't and, the end of the re- world. And the reason it's the end of the world is some of these people at the networks they, as I've said a hundred times, they don't want the best fighters. They want the fighters with the best records. They don't understand that fighters are allowed to lose fights and rebound and come back. They're only interested in undefeated fighters. Well, the same thing happened in New York recently, Joe Smith and Shawnee Monahan. That would have been a great local fight. And I remember Joe at a Boxing Writers Association of America dinner, I was hanging out with Joe DeGuardia and he was okay with me talking to Steven Espinosa to make that fight, you know? And he said, well, it's not really. It's a good local fight, but not across the country. The fight would have been so big out on Long Island, the way it could have been built up. Two Long Islanders, it's fun. You did, and you didn't, need, you didn't need television. That fight should have been made. And I don't, know why, I don't know why people are ragging on the Kelbrook-Amir Khan fight saying it's too late. Maybe it is too late, but it's still a big fight in England. You know, if I would have made that fight at this time. If you can make it now, make it. It's still a big fight. The problem sure. is... The writers and, and the so-called journalists and the website owners, everything is about just the, the, the top guys, the top guys. There's no, there's no stories about Jimmy Birchfield, what he's doing in New England, what Bobby Hitz is doing in Chicago. I'm tired of reading about uh, Eddie Hearn ragging on Aram, Aram ragging on women's boxing. You know, it's, it's enough already. Look at, look at the stories. What are you reading? It's all, I might fight Cambosis. Cambosis might fight Haney. He might fight this guy. What's happening? Nothing's happening. There's no news out there. It's all, it's, there's a lot of hate in boxing, a lot of hate in it. Russell, you know, you being a promoter and, and I imagine you have to work with other promoters sometimes uh, when you're, when you're doing fights, it seems that's where the problem lies, right? That one promoter wants to protect his stable, get a stable of fighters that'll fight each other and protect his fighters, and 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 there are the other promoters that really want to get the big fights made, uh, that will be willing to cross promote with them, and then you have a big war about that too. So, I mean, I I think 
and this is my just my opinion. I've 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 never worked in the boxing industry. This is just me as a fan. I think there should be a commissioner of boxing who all the promoters, you could have all five promoting uh, agencies in there, all five uh, sanctioning bodies in there, all the promotions involved in there. They have to vote this guy in. And he establishes some rules about contenders and about champions and have at it and stop playing these games where everybody makes money instead of just a few people making the money, few boxers and few promoters. Everybody makes the money that way. Everybody knows who the contenders and the champions are and they go at it. Is that far-fetched? Yes. And when okay. I was in high school in history class, I'll never forget this. The teacher said, Russell, here he asked the class, what are the chances of them ever being a United States of Europe? I said, it's never going to happen because the egos of the premiers and the presidents and the prime ministers of those countries are not going to want to give up their power any more than Daryl Peoples, Mauricio Suleiman, Mendoza, Paco are going to give up their power. They're just not going to do it. That, you know, what, what's, you know, the train has left the station. The bigger problem today is that the networks are a closed shop. Nobody can get on ESPN but Aram. Nobody can get on the zone but Eddie Hearn and to a lesser extent Golden Boy. Nobody can get on Fox and to a lesser extent Showtime but Al Heyman. So if I have a fighter who is a legitimate fighter and he's, let's just say he's 20, 20 wins and one losses because the undefeated stuff is BS. I can't get him television exposure without turning over half his contract to one of those guys. That's, you know, is that right? I know it's business, but when we had USA Network, who was dealing with Palulo and Mike Acri and Rock Newman and me and Dan Duva and, and Ron Weathers and, and promoters from all over the country, it was an open shop. It, you know, and guys could develop their own fighters and, and make money, but you can't do it today. It's, it, uh, I mean, listen, there's no excuse for Shawnee Monahan and Joe Smith not fighting. And if Showtime doesn't want it, who needs Showtime? I mean, what does that tell you about Showtime? You know, I remember when they were making Mickey Ward and Arturo Gatti. Okay. And Kerry Davis, who was at HBO, said, I never thought I'd see the day when two club fighters would fight a main event on HBO. And he said it derogatorily because he didn't want the fight. And look what happened. It was some of the greatest fights of our lifetime. Certainly the first one. The guys at the networks just don't get it. And they should because look where boxing is. Excuse my language, but boxing is a shit show today. This is not the boxing I fell in love with. Keith Thurman the other day. He's talking about his legacy. Keith Thurman is talking about his legacy. How could he even, and, and for some reason, Spider Webb's name came to my head. Now, Spider Webb was a hell of a middleweight in the 50s and early 60s. He beat Dick Tiger. He beat Terry Downs. He beat Giardello. He beat Rory Calhoun. He beat Holly Mims. He, there's a legacy, even though he was never world champ. Someone said the other day on Facebook, Boy, Benny Briscoe, it's a shame he would have one of those belts today. I said, let me tell you something. Better for Benny Briscoe to be Benny Briscoe when he was Benny Briscoe, when boxing meant something, than to have one of these plastic junk belts today that everybody on every street corner has. Suppose there was no playoffs this year in basketball. Suppose the season ended on the last day. That's what boxing is. 
So who's ever in first place in each of five or six divisions yeah. or conferences, they're the champs. That's yeah. what boxing has become. Yeah, and people point. say, well, you're a dinosaur. So I say two things. Number one, when I love boxing, boxing was a major sport. And number two, dinosaurs are fascinating even today. People go to museums, they study the skin. Russell, Russell, but the nature of the sport has changed, and I've seen it from firsthand experience, okay? Uh, I go to the weigh-in for the Charles Martin Lewis Ortiz show, and there's a tremendous amount of media there, and I'm looking around, and this is in Florida, Hollywood, Florida. I don't know this one person in the media and I'm not far removed from being the president of the Boxing Writers Association of America. I was the outsider. They all know one another. I was the old guy standing on the side. And I was, and I'm sure I was more accomplished than anyone there. And, and the times these shows end, okay, that's what gets me too. Main events are ending past midnight. They're catered to young people who want to take their date out. They're not catered at all to the guys who've been around who are there purely because they love boxing. It's more like a social thing for young people who like boxing. And bless them. I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily. But it's like the sport has even passed me by in an extent to go there. I go anyway all the time because I have to cover the fights part of the media. But just as a spectator, I wouldn't be going the way I did in the past if I didn't have the responsibilities to cover it from time to time. But who are these media people? They're just guys with I websites. don't know. I, but listen, but the point is they have a following. They go on YouTube, people watch them, and more people are probably viewing their stuff than are reading mine. That, you know, it's the... Okay, it's the but that, that's not... That's not that's not the boxing I grew up with. No, this is something. Yeah. There's a whole generation of fans today who think that multiple champions is the way it is. They have yeah. they weren't around when it you know oh my god he got in the top ten that's a big deal like Marlon Brando's famous line and on the waterfront you know what are you going to say today I could have been the WBC interim continental super bantamweight champion in recess. <laughs> You know, instead yeah. of I could have been a contender. Yeah. Russell, Monday night is when the fight of the century took place, Ali and Frazier. The nature of the business has changed. Every big fight has to be put on Saturday night. Could you imagine putting a mega event like that on a Monday night today? You know, weeknights, that's when the big shows took place at the Garden. It would be, you know, and it doesn't have, and the newspapers were so relevant during those times, and they're no longer relevant. Listen, this whole thing with Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford shows, I mean, come on, Emil Griffith, you think he would say I'm not fighting Louis Rodriguez next month unless I get like 90% of the money? I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I, I, it's, it's ridiculous. You can't even make, I mean, I'm still helping guys out with small blue collar club fights and you can't even get a, an 0-1 guy to fight a pro debut kid. It, it's without paying through the nose. It's and you have these paid fights where the manager pays for the whole fight. He pays his fighter. He pays the opponent. He pays the hotel, the travel, the medicals. That's not promoting. There's a difference between a promoter and a guy with a promoter's license. A big difference. And boxing, I'm sorry. It's just, uh, I'm not listening. If you like it, that's great. It's not for me anymore. It's just not for me.
So, Russell, let's get to your book. We we just trash boxing up and down for a while. <laughs> I do that uh, daily, Mac. I do. You're not the only one, Russell. Russell, trust me, trust me. Um, so let's get to your book. And and you know, I haven't really gotten into it yet. Jack has read it a little bit. Why don't you describe it to the people a little bit? Uh, what the book's about, and and you know, what what's your message? I mean, I know it's a it look back at 50 years of boxing, but what are you trying to convey to the to the readers out there that that maybe new readers that really haven't uh, uh, picked up a book and, and read about boxing. First of all, let me say that of all the things I've done in boxing, I've never been prouder of anything than this book because I get tired of reading so much uh, misinformation on the internet that I know that I wrote a book that is 100% accurate as to what really went on in boxing, at least in my career in Philly and Atlantic City and wherever my fighters quote unquote fought around the world. And I, I, it, I think it's a book that it's, this kind of book has never been written before. I mean, Teddy Brenner wrote Only the Ring Was Square and it was a great book and I devoured it, but he didn't get into statistics to finances and things like that in the book. And I wrote about the good things I did and I wrote about the bad things that I did. And I, I, I reunited with maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen guys who had fought for me that were still around. And uh, they had nice things to say to me and they had not so nice things to say to me. But uh, boxing is a very secretive business away from the ring. And not too many people know what goes on into like, I, I live in Florida during the winter. And when I have a fight in Philly, I, I, I fly back for a week. And one of my friends here says, don't the fighters just show up? You know, what do you need to be there? So, so much ahead of time for, but um, I had, a, I had, a, I had, a, I had a great life in boxing and I wanted to be, I wanted there to be a record of what really happened. Uh, there might be a guy here or there who say that's BS. They can say what they want. I lived it. There's no reason for me not to write the, the, the truth about what went on. And you can see the difference, how boxing developed or didn't develop over the years, the difference between the early days. But once you get to the 21st century, as far it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not the boxing that I fell in love with it. Listen, Friday night fights was my whole life as a kid. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. Spider Webb, Dick Tiger, Joey Giambra, Denny Moyer. I mean, Henry Hank, Harold Johnson, a rare Sonny Liston sighting. I mean, when, when people who went to the football games to see the Eagles play, everybody knew Sonny Liston was heavyweight champ. I went out yeah. to dinner with two couples last night. I said, who's the heavyweight champ? And these are sports fans. They have no clue. I said, well, I guess you don't know who the welterweight champ is either. Said, no, who was it? You know, Kid Gavilan, Emil Griffith. Jesus, I, you know, the the book is a, a look inside boxing, and I don't think a book like this has ever been read before. And and actually, Mac, the the, re the reviews, whether on Amazon or on social media, have been so good that I said, I better go back and read this thing again. See what these people are talking about. I'm very proud of the book. Very proud. Russell has every penny a show made a loss. You know, he lists that, and that's kind of fascinating to see that. But, you know, you write about the elements of 
who's promoting a fight. And the case of Benny Briscoe is absolutely fascinating because the best thing that would have happened to Benny Briscoe, that did happen to his career, actually, Russell, was fighting for you, having you promote him because he was your franchise player. If he was with a bigger promoter, he would have been just another player another on the team, basically. But with you, he was the main star. Things got maximized. And because there was basically one champion around then, and he had to get over the top against two great champions, Carlos Monzon, who he nearly knocked out, and Rodrigo Valdez, vastly underrated. He didn't quite win the title. But I think Briscoe had a greater career as a contender than the majority of champions had, you know, during theirs, even though they officially held one of four possible titles. No, I agree. And I tell fighters today, I said, if you're going to sign, because I'm, I'm only managing a couple of kids and advising. I said, if you're going to sign with a promoter who's got 80 fighters under contract, okay, you better figure out what number you're going to be with that promoter. Are you going to be number one? You're going to be number 37. You're going to be number 66. I said, you, you know, take your time before you decide what you're doing, because you need a promoter who's going to be, you know, the best promoter for you. Right. Not for the other 87 guys he's got. Right. Right. And listen, I agree with that, too. I mean, that's that, that only makes sense. Russell, tell us uh, and, and the viewers that are watching this, how they can get a hold of your book. I know it's on Amazon and and that, but give them a listing of the outlets they can go to. Give them a listing of the outlets of, of where your well, book is. No, I'm only going to mention Amazon because the amount of money I make from Barnes and Noble and the rest is like literally pennies. They can either go to my website, peltsboxing.com. If they want it signed, they can't get it signed on Amazon. So the two places to get it are either directly from me, my website, peltsboxing.com, or Amazon. Okay. Okay. That makes sense, too. Well, I, I will say with Russell, too, uh, for all your great qualities as a promoter, I don't know what I have hired you as a scout, refusing to sign <laughs> Marvin Hagler when he, you know, they wanted to. I don't know about that move, Russell. Yeah, it makes, it makes for a good story, Jack. Yes, yes, you know, Jack, yes. I, I really have no regrets. I mean, you know, it, yes. it's... Listen, Aram sold Mayweather back his contract for seven hundred and fifty thousand. So, you know, yeah. the scheme of hey, things. there you and go. Do you really, you really think I would have gotten Buster Douglas a title shot in the days when King controlled everything? I mean, really, I would have had. I mean, yeah, he'd have gotten his shot, but King would have taken over. Well, it's just quick. One, a, a Philly fighter that came after Briscoe, Bernard Hopkins, a middleweight like Briscoe. Hopkins against Briscoe. You're partial. You can't be objective. But I'm going to ask you anyway. Nobody what would have happened? Main event at the Spectrum. At their peaks, Hopkins against Briscoe. We know who you're going to pick, but tell us how you see it playing. I'll tell you why I'll pick Briscoe, okay? Number one, fighters back then like Briscoe and Benton, they wouldn't have gotten bummed out like Trinidad did when Hopkins threw down the flag, okay, the Puerto Rican flag. That wouldn't have bothered them. And when who did who was it in Montreal where Hopkins did push-ups in the ring during one round of the yeah, fight? Wow. You think he would have done that against Briscoe or Benton? They, they listen. Briscoe would have hit Hopkins in the cup a couple times below the belt because Briscoe was known for that. Hopkins would be. I love Hopkins. So I don't care. He'd be complaining to the referee. He he would try to foul out. 
he would try to foul out Hopkins, and and he has tried that in the past. You know, Briscoe would Briscoe would have said, "Don't you know? What are you bothering me with your psych your psych stuff?" Briscoe, yeah. see Briscoe, he didn't care if he walked into the ring first, like these prima donnas do today. They want to be second because Briscoe would go into the ring with a shaven head glistening and walked around the ring. And when the other guy came out of the dressing room and saw that, he'd have been shitting himself. Okay. So the ring would have been 16 feet inside the ropes. So Russell, before we let you go, Carlos says he wants an autograph book. Can you give out your website one more time for him? It's my name, Peltz, P-E-L-T-Z, boxing.com. All right, Russell. Uh, listen, we appreciate you coming in. We appreciate your honesty, which I love about a guest. And uh, keep doing what you do, Russ. Keep keep fighting the good fight. Uh, you know, it's it, as you said, it's, it might be a lost cause, but hey, we're still around and we still uh, love boxing. So I lo- I love it too. I don't love it as much, but hey, if you love it, you love it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Fury Wilder. See if there were more fights like Fury Wilder. When it's I done agree. right, nothing's better. I agree, Russell. You have a great one. And have Thank a great you. Day. Take care. All the best, Russell. So there you go, folks. The great Russell Peltz and his new book, $30 and a cut eye. So check it out and uh, go to his website and see if you can get an autograph or go to Amazon. That's where he makes his money. So I would tell you to do that too. Jack, it's been a fascinating show. Uh, we had Bobby Gooden, Goodman on, no relation to Benny, who who did a great job, a uh, Hall of Fame matchmaker in boxing for years and years and years. Russell Peltz, another Hall of Famer promoter, uh, writer, just had a great book come out. Folks, check it out. That's us for our Thursday show, folks. We'll be back tomorrow with our Friday edition with uh, Keith Angle from TGI Sports, Byron Williams, our NFL analyst, and, of course, the Philly sports guy talking Philly sports. Have a great Thursday, folks. We'll see you tomorrow.